Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. Today we come to the final conclusion of our sermon series entitled, Who's Your One? Who's Your One? Throughout the course of this series, we've been reminded of the importance of every single one. Of course, we've been been reminded of that because Jesus placed great importance and significance on every single person. He illustrated that in many different ways, but one of my favorite ways that he illustrated that was in the reminder that he is the good shepherd. He's a good shepherd who comes to to give life and to give it abundantly. He's a good shepherd who comes to lay down his life for the sheep. Of course, I'm reminded of the illustration that Jesus gave of the good shepherd who had 100 sheep, and as he gathered them together, he realized that he had 99 sheep. There was one lost sheep that was missing. Most would say in that situation, well, shepherd, you've got the majority. You're good to go. Just let it go. But no, not the good shepherd. The good shepherd, the Bible says, he leaves the 99. He goes and he finds the one lost sheep. When he finds it, he puts it over his shoulders and the Bible says he rejoices because the lost sheep has been found. Yes, Jesus is the good shepherd who cares about every single one. Simple truth this morning is that knowing the good shepherd's care and concern for every single one should cause every single one of us who know Jesus to have the same concern to have the same care, to have the same compassion for all. In fact, it causes me to wonder this morning, how can we say that we love Jesus if we don't love the very people that he gave his life for? How can we say that Jesus is our Lord if we are not following his example of of care and concern and compassion for every single one? How can we say that we're genuinely following Jesus if we're not obeying his command to go into all the world to reach Every one. Who is your one? Surely this morning as we open God's word to Luke chapter 16 for our time together this morning, I'm reminded that in our lives there are many things that we can give our life to. Sometimes we give our life to our occupation, the things that we do for a living, our vocation. We're focused on that paycheck. We're focused on our earnings and that's what we give our life to. Sometimes we give our life to that which we find our identity in, and they can be good things like even being a a spouse, a husband or a wife, or being a parent, or even being a child, and we, we give all of our energy and we find our identity in those things. Sometimes we find our joy and our purpose in our possessions and in our wealth, our recreational experiences, our hobbies, and all these different things that aren't necessarily bad. But I'm reminded this morning that Not everything that we give time and attention to will matter in eternity. There are a lot of things that we give our time and attention to, we give our thoughts to, we give our passion and our energy, even our resources to, that frankly won't matter in eternity. Over the last few weeks as we have gone through this pandemic, I have stated repeatedly that one of the benefits that's coming from this trying time in our life is that God in many ways is hitting the pause button. And in that pause button, we're having an opportunity to examine and an opportunity to reflect, to, to, to discern in our life, what are we really living for? More importantly, who are we really living for? 
The fact is, in the midst of this pause, God has stripped away the fluff of life, and he's allowing us an opportunity to examine that question, who are we living for and what are we living for? Because when all is said and done, when this life is over, there will be an eternity. And in that eternity, we will know full well, what did we do on earth that mattered and what did we do on earth that was a waste of time? What did we do on earth that mattered for eternity's sake and what was simply a temporary feeling of the time? The fact of the matter is this morning is that I believe God is calling every single one of us this morning to focus in on the reality of eternity. Now I realize this morning as you sit there in your living room or around your kitchen table, that's a difficult subject. Why? It's difficult for many reasons, but it's largely difficult because we don't see it right now. We see the present. We see the here and now. We see the things that we can touch and that we can feel and that we can meditate on. We see these things in front of us. But what God is calling us to do is this. He's calling us to look beyond the temporary here and now and to live our life for eternity. Let me share with you a simple reality this morning about eternity. Think on this for just a moment. Every single person that you know will spend an eternity somewhere. Every single person you know has one soul and they will spend an eternity somewhere. I believe that is the reality that God is calling us this morning to consider, to think on, to meditate on and to consider as we think about what God would have us to do. Every single person will spend an eternity somewhere. So what is it that God wants us to know about eternity? How should that reality impact our lives? I believe Jesus answers the question in Luke chapter 16. Listen to what the Bible says in Luke 16 verses 19 through 31. The Bible says this, Jesus speaks and he says, now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, or King James says, in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. 
But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, surely they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. This morning, I want to preach to you from God's word from Luke 16 on the subject, one eternity. Let's pray together. Father, I pray right now that you would give us eyes to see Give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to respond by faith to the words that you teach us in Luke 16. May it all be for the name and the praise, the glory of Jesus. Amen. This morning as we open God's word to this subject of one eternity, I believe God has a a strong and yet vitally important message that he wants us to hear. Even though most of us would rather put it off, The fact of the matter is, I don't think there's a more important topic for us to discuss at this day and this hour than the topic of eternity. Now, I realize this morning that that's not uh, often encouraging for some. I realize that may not give you the the, the, the feel goods, if you will. I realize that may not be the most encouraging message that you would want to hear, but it's a message that we must hear. Because here's the reality of eternity— It's like the old game, hide and seek. Ready or not, it's coming. Whether you and I, whether every single person we know is ready or not, we will eventually live our life in eternity. So it's so important that today, while we're living, while we have a clear mind, while we have an opportunity to consider the reality of eternity. In fact, I'm reminded of this today that surely if there was ever a time where we understood the need to talk about important and essential matters, surely it's today. Think back just a few months ago right here in our country. Just a few months ago, we were here in January and and life was going well and it seemed like things were good. We had gotten started off on this new 2020 year. And there were lots of things going on in the world. There were lots of political discussions happening, lots of debates about who was going to win the Democratic nomination. There were all kinds of things happening politically. There was a lot happening in sports. As we began to see who's going to win the national championship and what's going to happen in the NFL, and we began to think about the spring seasons, there was a lot of normal things happening. At the same time that was happening, we began to hear in a distant land in China about a, a virus that was beginning to have an outbreak, and we were hearing rumors and reports, but when you turn on the news here, everybody was saying, it's not that big of a deal, we're okay, we're going to be all right, it's not going to affect us here in America. Simple fact is, people didn't really want to talk about it. It wasn't until we got into mid-February. And then the end of February, then the beginning of March, that all of a sudden we began to realize, you know what? We should have been talking about it all along. This was a big deal. This is a serious crisis. This is going to affect everybody, literally the globe. We should have been talking about it. The fact of the matter is, in a very real way, and frankly, I would say in a more serious way, we must be discussing eternity, whether it's comfortable or not. We can't put it off. We can't ignore it. We must talk about it. Why? Because we must be prepared. So this morning, one, eternity. Did you know that the Bible tells us from the very beginning when he created Adam and Eve, he created man and he breathed into man the breath of life. And the Bible says something unique about man upon all other creation. It says this, God breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. We became a living soul. 
Now today in our culture, we tend to focus on the physical body that we can see. We, we talk about the features that we observe perhaps as someone. We might say in our terminology that our body has a soul. But from God's perspective, it's the other way around. From God's perspective, we are a living soul that is temporarily housed in a physical body. But here's the truth. We won't live in this physical body forever. We won't. In fact, our physical bodies show evidence of decay every single day. They give us reminders that this physical body wasn't made to last forever. For example, I have more gray hair today than I did when this pandemic started just a few months ago. True statement. Not only that, but uh, I have more, more wrinkles and a few more rolls today than I had just a few short months ago. Why? You might say, well, because Pastor, you're eating too much. Well, that might be true, but the simple reality is because this physical body wasn't made to last forever. It is a temporary dwelling place for my soul. While our physical body is decaying, that is not the case with our soul. When our physical body dies, the Bible says our soul will go into what the Bible calls eternity. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says it this way. God has made everything appropriate in its time. Listen to this statement. He also has set eternity in their heart. Think about that for just a moment. God has put in the conscience of man, in the heart of man, an understanding that there will be life after this. There's a reason why 80% of Americans believe in heaven. That's not because we were a Christian nation founded on Christian principles. It's because that in the conscience and the conviction of man, God has put eternity on the heart of man. It's interesting to note when you go to other nations and other lands, you can go to other tribes and villages. They all have a belief in a higher power and some thought and concept of an afterlife. Why? Because God has put it on the heart and conscience of every single person that there is an eternity. When, when, when does somebody be, someone would ask, well, when does eternity begin? How, when do we experience this eternity? Here's a simple reality. The Bible makes it clear from Luke 16 and other passages that at the very moment of death, when this physical body dies, our soul begins to live in eternity. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, speaking of our physical body, and after this is the judgment. So today we live physically on this earth, but one day when we die at death, our soul will go into eternity. That is the emphasis of what Jesus is giving in Luke chapter 16. Now from our text this morning, I want us to make three observations about this one eternity. In Luke 16, I want us to first see the contrast of two lives. The contrast of two lives. There are some today who look at this pastor scripture in Luke 16 and they try to debate whether or not this was a parable of Jesus or an actual real life story. But regardless of whether it's a parable or a real life story, here's what we know. These are the words of Jesus. I personally believe this is a real life story because Jesus never said it was a parable first off and because he used the names of two literal and specific people. Jesus is giving us, I believe, a true story of eternity and what that looked like in the life of two different people. We see the contrast of those lives here in this passage of Scripture. Now think of this for just a moment. It's important for us to understand the background of this text. Go back and read sometime this week, Luke chapter 16, verses 1, all the way down to verse 15, and we quickly see that Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees were that religious group. They said that they worshiped God. They said just people. But here's the reality. They did not have a relationship with God. If they had a relationship with God, they would have received Jesus. They would have accepted him by faith. But instead, at every turn, we see them uh, rejecting Jesus and pushing Jesus away. In Luke chapter 16, the context of this in verse 14 is that the Bible tells us that Jesus was looking at the people and he was teaching his disciples, don't put your trust in money. Don't put your trust in possessions. Don't put your security in your position of influence and your title. Don't put your, your security in how much is in your bank account. No, you put your trust and you put your security and you put your hope in that which is eternal. The Bible tells us in Luke 16, verse 14, that the Pharisees, who happened to be lovers of money, they were scoffing at Jesus. The Greek word literally means they were lifting their nose. This is where we get the expression being stuck up. They were rejecting Jesus. They were scoffing at him. They looked at their financial well-being. They looked at their health and security and said, oh, God must really love us. Look at the favor we have from him. And then to them, Jesus began to tell the true story about two men in Luke chapter 16. And we see them contrasted in the verses. Verses 19 through 21, the Bible tells us that you frankly could not find two more opposite people in all the Bible than who the Bible calls simply the rich man and Lazarus. Think of this for just a moment. When the Bible tells us this, it's reminding us of how different they really were. One man was rich, the other man was poor. One man strutted around proudly like he owned everything, while the other man was unable to walk at all. One man had servants to do everything for him. The other man had to beg for every helping hand he could find. One man lived in great splendor and great significance while the other lived in great poverty. It seems that one man lived in great health. He had the best thing that money could buy in that day while the other man lived covered completely in sores. One man ate a feast at every single meal. The other man simply begged for crumbs from the rich man's table. One man surrounded himself with countless companions, probably different people at the table all the time. Where the other man's only companions were the dogs that came to lick his sores. Truth be told, it's from man's perspective, it would see, we'd see loud and clear that these two guys were very, very different. There's a great contrast between the two. But from man's perspective, we miss in our physical eye seeing the greatest difference between the two. Because what I suggest to you this morning is that the greatest difference was not the blessing of one man and the burden of the other. No, the greatest difference in the two men was the condition of their soul. The condition of their soul. The Bible makes it clear that there's no way you enter heaven without a relationship with God that comes through faith. The Bible makes it clear that whenever they entered eternity, that Lazarus, the poor man, when he died, that he literally went to heaven. Well, how does he get there? He didn't get there by his good works. He didn't get there by all the great things that he did. He didn't get there because his parents might have believed in God. No, he got there through faith. The only way we can enter heaven is by grace through faith. In fact, I believe we get a picture of that by literally the name of Lazarus. The name Lazarus means God is my help. God is my help. I believe when you begin to study the context of this pastor's scripture, we find that Lazarus was a man who lived his life looking to God for help. After all, what do you do 
when you don't have others to help you? What do you do when you don't have the answer to the uncertainties of life? What do you do when you don't know where your next meal is going to come from? What do you do when you don't know what to do? You look to God for help. Lazarus lived his life looking to God for help. Lazarus looked to God with faith and belief that God would take care of him. As one writer said it this way, Lazarus lived by looking to God and trusting him while the rich man looked at his wealth and trusted in himself. The truth of the matter is this morning is this. What we live for reveals who and what we truly love. What we live for reveals who and what we truly love. The Bible says of this rich man here in this pastor scripture that he was joyously living in splendor every single day. The picture here is of a man who lived like a king. He lived like he was the king, that he was the lord of the manor, that he was the master of the mansion, that he owned it all. He could do whatever he wanted, whatever he pleased. We see this in the way that he continually wore clothes fit for a king. We see this in the way that Lazarus was brought to his gate and there he was begging and there he was asking. And it seems that day after day after day, the rich man ignored Lazarus. He had no concern for him, no compassion at all. He cared nothing. He was so full of himself that he cared nothing of Lazarus. But unfortunately for the rich man, it was not just Lazarus that he was rejecting. It was God he was rejecting. By the end of the text, we began to realize loud and clear that this rich man's first love, his focus of his life, the thing he pursued most was ultimately to please himself, to do what he wanted, to build his life how he wanted, to focus on the things that he desired, and he completely missed out on showing love and devotion and faith in God first and foremost. It reminds me of the people in the last day that the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, literally that men in the last days will be lovers of self. They will be lovers of money and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Lazarus, on the other hand, demonstrated his faith by looking to God, by depending upon God. In fact, I believe in the context of these verses of Scripture, we also get the picture that Lazarus, as he was there at the gate, not only begged and not only asked for the scraps from the man's tables, but I believe he was also pointing him to God, telling him about God, giving an opportunity for the man to hear about eternity, to live for the things of eternity and not for the temporary pleasures of life. But the man rejected every single one of them. Yes, there was a great contrast between the two. We see the obvious physically, but I want you to focus on the spiritual. Didn't matter whether they were rich or poor, they both did have one thing in common. They were both men, both mankind. What did Hebrews 9 say about mankind? Apart from Jesus coming back in this moment, the Bible says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this is the judgment. Didn't matter they were rich or poor. The one thing they had in common is they were both from a fallen race, a fallen mankind, just like you and me. And because of that, the day came that they died. This is the conclusion of their life on earth. You know, it's interesting when you begin to think about death. Death is a very sobering reality because it is not a respecter of persons. As one preacher said years ago, death is the great leveler. It doesn't matter what you had on this earth or didn't have. It doesn't matter if you were famous or not. 
doesn't matter you had a fat bank account or nothing in the bank account. It doesn't matter what you drove or if you didn't have a car at all. It doesn't matter. In the end, our end will be death. All that matters in that moment is what you did in your life that mattered for eternity. In other words, this morning when the day comes that we breathe our last breath, when this physical life is over, death is not the end. It is the beginning of a whole new existence in another world. And that's what Jesus is focusing on. He's getting the Pharisees, he's getting the people in that day, he's getting us today to focus not just on the here and now, not just the temporary, not even just the pandemic that's coming and going and the trials and the, the victories and the valleys and the, the ups and the downs. No, he's saying, listen, I want you to focus beyond the temporary. Focus on eternity. Think about the condition of your soul. Think about what's to come when this physical life is over. We see the contrast of the two lives, but secondly, I want you to see the conclusion of the lost. Verse 22 tells us a simple and yet subtle conclusion for the man who believed in God. Jesus tells us in this passage of scripture that both men died. No doubt the rich man had an elaborate uh, funeral with all the bells and whistles. Probably the poor man was literally thrown out to a, a grave with beggars if he even had a grave. Listen to what the Bible says in verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. Now think of this for just a moment. Jesus didn't spend a lot of time talking about the poor man, Lazarus, and about his eternity. He just simply says he died, and he wasn't alone. He was carried away by the angels who took him to Abraham's bosom. Please understand that Abraham's bosom is just a poetic expression of heaven. Jesus used similar words of the same phrase when Jesus looked at the thief on the cross and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Both of those descriptions were simple descriptions of heaven. And Jesus just kind of says it and he moves on. I'm reminded this morning that for those who believe in God and trust in his plan for salvation, the Bible says literally at death, immediately, immediately we are taken into the very presence of the Lord in heaven. Listen to this scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. The Bible says, therefore, being always a good courage. This is for you, Christian. And knowing that while we are at home in this body, we're absent from the Lord. For today we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer, listen to this, rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. I'm here to tell you this morning, I hope and pray that God gives me another 50 to 60 to 70 years to live on this earth and to preach his word until Jesus comes again. But I'm here to tell you this morning, when the time comes that I breathe my last breath, when the time comes that this physical body dies, don't weep for me and don't mourn for me because I'll be more alive than I've ever been before. At the very moment of death for the believer, the Bible says that the angels of heaven usher us into the presence of the Lord, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That is a wonderful word of encouragement. But Jesus quickly moves on. He doesn't focus his attention on Lazarus. He doesn't focus his attention on heaven. But because he wants us to know there's a second location of eternity. Yes, there is heaven for all who believe in Jesus. Yes, there is heaven for all who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. But he begins to tell us loud and clear in Luke chapter 16, but there is hell for all who reject him. 
There is hell for all who refuse to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There is hell for those who do not put their faith in God. See, what I want you to see this morning in Luke chapter 16 is that Jesus is describing eternity and he's reminding us that every single person will spend an eternity somewhere. What about you? Where will you spend eternity? What about your family members and your neighbors, your coworkers, people that you do life with? Where will they spend eternity? Jesus begins to focus in in Luke chapter 16 on what I'm going to say are five realities of hell. Now, there are some who debate, are we talking about Hades here or are we talking about hell? And what does this mean theologically? And what are other passages of scripture? I think it's important to emphasize that the King James translates it hell for a reason and all the early church fathers translated it hell for a reason. Regardless of whether you're calling it Hades or whether you're calling it hell, what we do know is this, what Jesus is describing is eternity without God. Eternity separated from him. There are five realities that Jesus tells us of this rich man in hell. Number one, that hell is a place of constant agony. It's a place of constant agony. I I wish that, that I didn't have to paint such a harsh picture. I wish I didn't have such bad news, but that's a simple reality. Hell is a place of constant agony. Please understand that hell is a real place. The Bible tells us in hell that the rich man could see, he could hear, he could speak, and he could even feel. No matter how you break it down, when you read through the New Testament, one of the most common characteristics of hell is that it is a place of absolute agony, suffering, and torment. The Bible tells us here that the rich man lifted up his eyes being in torment. In fact, he was in such torment that here he is for the first time. He never had to beg a single time in his life, but instantly in hell, he's crying out, somebody help me. Why? Because he was in a place of constant agony. Why? He tells us, because I am in intense flame. Please let Lazarus come and dip his finger in water. Then I can have just a drop because this intense flame is it's torturous and it's agonizing. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't like pain. I especially don't like being burned. And I remember times as a child doing something that was foolish or clumsy, didn't know better where I got my hand burned. I remember several years ago as a grown man, about 10 years ago, I I rushed in to get something out of the oven and I didn't realize that the top burner was on and I instantly burned my arm. I still have scars of those things on my body. In fact, I still have vivid memories of exactly what happened and I've tried not to let those things happen again. But can I say to you, that's nothing compared to the agony of hell. Let me ask you, what's the most painful thing that you've ever felt or experienced? A root canal? A, a, a surgery on a rotator cuff? A, a, back, a back pain? Ladies' childbirth? I don't know what the most intense pain you've ever experienced, but I want you to know it's nothing compared to the agony of hell. Listen to what the Bible describes it. In Matthew chapter eight, verses 12 and following, the Bible says that Jesus described hell as a place of outer darkness. In that place, he says, there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verse 41, the Bible describes hell in such a way, what will happen to those when death comes if they have rejected Jesus? The Bible says that Jesus says, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Revelations 20, verse 15, listen to this summary statement at the very end. The Bible says it this way, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. It's God's word. Hell is a place of constant, never-ending agony. The second reality of hell we see in this passage of scripture is this. This might be the surprise of it all. Hell is a place of unanswered prayers. It's a place of unanswered prayers. Not only is there torment and agony in hell, surprisingly to many, it's also a place where prayers are prayed. Being in torment, the Bible says that the rich man lifted up his eyes and from a great distance he could see Abraham. Now, he had never met Abraham before, but he knew who Abraham was. Oh, he'd heard all about Abraham. All the Jews knew who Abraham was. He was that great man of faith. He was that great man of God. He was that great patriarch that they, they, they looked to and they wanted to be like. Oh, they knew who he was. And so instantly the Bible says that there he was in hell and he lifted his eyes and from a great distance he could see Abraham. And finally in this moment he cries out, Father Abraham. He comes with a prayer. He comes with a request. Never in the man's life before had he been serious about faith in God. Never in his life does it seem that he had given much thought to prayer. After all, why, need, why do you pray when you got everything you need? Why do you pray when you think you are the answer to your own problem? The fact of the matter is death had stripped all that away. All of that was what now he found himself in need. Now himself found himself immediately crying out to God for help, crying out, Father Abraham, can you please come help me? Oh, he believed in prayer now. Indeed, he was the beggar now. So he cried out. It's interesting to note that it took him experiencing the reality of hell before he'd ever humble himself and cry out and request. Why is this the case so often in our life that we tend to be stubborn depending upon ourselves, depending upon our logic, depending on our ability, depending on our energy, our wealth, our decisions, rather than looking to God for help. I remember when I was a child so often, I quickly learned to turn to God in times of distress. I could go days, weeks, or even months without praying besides praying for the food. And all of a sudden, I'd do something foolish and I'd get in trouble. And my dad would say, go to my bedroom. We're going to talk. And I knew what we're going to talk meant. It meant that my life was in jeopardy, okay? And I remember going to that back bedroom, and there my parents had two recliners. And I remember sitting in the recliner. My last thing my dad said to me was this, I want you to think about what you've done. I'd go to that recliner, and I'd sit down, and I'd start thinking about what I'd done. And the more I thought about what I'd done, you know what I began to do? I began to pray. Oh, God, I need your help. God, my daddy's going to kill me. Oh, God, would you intervene? Oh, God, would you help him to forget what I've done? And I began to bargain with God, even as a child. Something about those moments of crisis caused me to cry out to God in a way that I'd never experienced before. The Bible says that the rich man, it wasn't until he got to hell where he realized his need and he realized his urgency and he began to pray and cry out, Father Abraham, if, if anybody can help me, surely you can help me. Maybe that sounds strange to say that there are prayers in heaven, but I want to remind you this morning, it's not really all that strange at all. In fact, Jesus even said that there would be preachers and religious people in hell. Matthew chapter seven, Jesus said it this way, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, he will enter. For many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform any miracles? And Jesus said, I'll declare to them, depart from me, 
I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. It's interesting that the rich man in this moment of desperation knew exactly what he needed to do. He needed to pray. But by then it was too late. Reminding the context of this is that Jesus is speaking this to the Pharisees. He's speaking this to the religious crowd. He's speaking to those who had a head knowledge but had no relationship with God. Yes, hell is a place of unanswered prayers. Third, hell is a place of tormenting memories. Think of this for just a moment. The Bible says that whenever he cried out and asked for help and asked for some sort of relief from the pain that he was in, the very first thing Abraham said was this. But Abraham said, child, remember. Remember that during your life, you received your good things. Verse 25, and now you are in agony. I think one of the most sober realities of hell is that in hell, there will be a crystal clear, perfect memory. This man had a memory. In this moment, I believe he has not only a memory of how he lived, but he has a memory of how his wealth was spent, how his resources were spent. He has a memory now of all the days that God gave him life and God gave him breath and God gave him opportunity. The rich man was reminded of the many times that he passed Lazarus in the gate and he missed the opportunity. The rich man was reminded of every time he had conversations with his brothers, parties with his friends, and he missed the opportunity. The rich man was reminded in this moment, every time Lazarus is there, offering hope and every time Lazarus was telling him about God and every time Lazarus was talking about living for eternity he had missed it all he had squandered it all I believe in this moment in hell literally all the wasted years of his life were rising up before him why because there are memories in hell those who spent an eternity in hell will painfully remember every opportunity they had every time they heard the gospel every time someone shared, every time someone prayed for them, and they'll remember with every time that they rejected the very one that they needed. Truth be told this morning, I'm thankful for our memory. I really am. It's interesting how much our memory sticks with us. Usually that's a good thing. We like to remember special days and occasions. We like to remember special moments and special seasons and special people and Remember their facial expression and remember the, the joyous times that we've had together. But the truth of the matter is this morning, every single one of us likely has some things in our life that we wish we could forget. We all have a memory of a bad experience, someone who hurt us, a grief that we faced, an injustice that was done to us, a fear that crippled us, a disease that threatened us. There's some things we'd rather forget. But the reality in hell is that a man will never forget how he lived and what he lost by not looking to God and trusting him. There's a tormenting memories in hell. Fourth, hell is a place of permanent separation. If you haven't heard anything I've heard the entire message so far, I would encourage you to sit up. If somebody across you is, is falling asleep, kind, kind of tap them on the leg, wake them up a little bit. Hell is a place, the Bible says, of permanent separation. Abraham now begins to explain why this man's prayer couldn't be answered, why Lazarus couldn't provide for the relief that he asked for. Abraham explained these simple words. Beside all this, 
between us and you, verse 26, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. In other words, there is no traffic that moves between heaven and hell. In other words, here's what he's saying. Once you die, your soul enters eternity and that's it. There's no resets. There's no do-overs. There's no timeouts to reconsider. It's appointed a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. And at that judgment, it will be loud and clear. Did we accept Jesus or not? Did we reject him or, or, or did we take him as our own? What happens in that brief moment when we die literally is once that moment occurs, we move into eternity, and that eternal dwelling place, it is said there's nothing that can undo it. Can I just say to us this morning, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what joy this is for the believer. What joy this is to know that if you've accepted Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, literally to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and you're gonna be in heaven for all of eternity. Notice the Bible tells us that Lazarus couldn't leave heaven. He couldn't be brought down to hell. He couldn't be released, if you will, from heaven. He couldn't be taken out of it. His eternal dwelling place was secure as he was there with the Lord. All but for the unbeliever. I can't think of anything more terrifying and more miserable than to know that you are in an eternity in hell and that state is permanently set. Abraham said there is a chasm, there is a distance, there is a separation between us that cannot be bridged, that cannot be changed. It will never be undone. It is permanently for all of eternity settled between the two of us. Think of that for just a moment. I don't know about you, but when I think about that, I'm reminded of a time or two when I was a child. Do you remember ever as a child going to a store with your parent? or parents, and they constantly told you, don't wander away, stay here close, but something about the curiosity of a child just kind of causes us to wander a little bit. I remember a few times when I was a child, my mom said, stay right here, hold the buggy, hold the cart, and I did until my eyes saw something. There had been a time or two where she was focused on getting the items that she needed, and I was distracted, and I ran off to pursue what I wanted to pursue only as a child to suddenly get to what I wanted to see and turn around and realize my mother wasn't there. I remember as a child, a time or two of literally in that moment of panic, of realizing, where's my mom? Where is she gone? And looking around and seeing no one or seeing only people that I didn't recognize. And I remember even as a child, the panic that overwhelmed my heart and my emotions. Friend, can I say to you this morning, that is nothing compared to what we're going to experience. For those that do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, that is nothing compared to the reality of when you wake up in eternity and you realize you are permanently separated from God in hell, that there's a separation, that there's a gap, that there's no way to get back to him, there's no way to be rescued, that it's final, it's the end, it can't be done over, your chance has come and gone. It's interesting to note that the rich man he didn't ask for a way out. He, he, didn't, he didn't ask for a way out. He didn't ask for a change. Or he, he didn't say, oh, is there anything we can undo this? No, why didn't he? Because he knew it was final. He knew the opportunities that he'd had, but he'd rejected all along the way. He knew that the chasm between hell and heaven would never be removed. 
Warren Wiersbe says it this way, hell is not a hospital for the sick, it is a permanent prison for the condemned. Listen to this verse of scripture, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9 says it this way, the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. In other words, there's no good news to offer the person in hell. There's no relief to give. There's no end in sight. There's no promise of hope. It is absolute eternal separation from God. The fifth reality, I gotta move quickly, is this. The final reality is this. Hell is a place of deep regret. It's a place of deep regret. What did the rich man do? The Bible says he begged Abraham, Abraham, Surely, can't you send Lazarus? I know you can't, I can't be saved. I know my eternal destiny is secure. I'm literally in hell and I know I'm in torment. There's nothing that can be done for me. But what about my brothers? What about the people that I love? Because I don't want them to come here. I, I want them to go to heaven. I want them to experience what Lazarus is experiencing. I want them to know God and I want them to be ready for eternity. Abraham, I know it can't be changed for me, but Abraham, could you just send Lazarus? Let Lazarus go and tell them the truth. Let Lazarus go and tell them about heaven. Let Lazarus go and tell them about God. Let Lazarus go and tell them the message that eternity is real and heaven can be their home. Abraham, would you just send Lazarus? What the man came to the conclusion of is this. Their eternity was set. Lazarus couldn't go and neither could he. Could you imagine the regret that haunts him for eternity? To know that he could have warned them? He, he could have led his brothers in a different way? He could have taken the time to accept the reality of God and the reality of heaven and of hell. He could have accepted the reality and pointed them to them. He could have done many things, but instead he missed it all. Believe in eternity, he'd lived his life with deep regret. Abraham quickly concludes, no, that's not gonna happen. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Verse 31, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You know what Abraham's saying? Abraham's saying this, Rich man, people come to God, heaven, by faith, or they don't experience it at all. The fact of the matter is, Abraham was not being harsh. He was simply telling the truth. By the way, it's inter interesting to note that the very next person in the gospel accounts that Jesus would raise from the dead happened in John chapter 11 to another man by the name of, hello, Lazarus. And when he was raised again from the grave, did the Pharisees believe in Jesus then? No. Instead, they simply sought for more ways to kill him and get rid of him. Even Caiaphas, the high priest, was in on it. Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying in that moment, it wasn't that they needed Lazarus or someone returning from the dead. What they needed was faith in Jesus. Abraham gives this reality as the rich man is in his eternal hell. Final thing I want you to see, and we're gonna wrap up, is this. I want you to see the call to eternal life. The call to eternal life. 
I realize this morning this is a heavy message. And I'm going to wrap up here quickly. But it's a truthful message. And it's one that we must consider. It's one that we must meditate on and apply to our lives. Whether you want to deal with it or not, whether you want to accept it or not, whether you turned me off a long time ago or you're just kind of sitting there gritting your teeth and not wanting anything to do, I'm just here to tell you, whether or not eternity is coming for every single one of us. Some will ask the question, how can a loving God send people to hell? But the simple reality is this morning, And so when we begin to ask that question, we begin to demonstrate that we don't understand truly the love of God or the absolute evil of sin. Sin is a complete and total rebellion against a holy and loving God. Yes, God is a God of compassion. From the foundation of the world, he looked upon all of us with compassion and with kindness and concern about our soul. God is a God of mercy. He's a God who desires not to give us what we deserve. He's a God who desires to forgive us and pardon us and cleanse us and wash us as white as snow as if we've never even sinned. He's a God of grace. Not only does he desire to forgive us and cleanse us, he desires to give us things that we could never earn on our own. He desires to give us heaven. He desires to to move in and through our lives. He desires for us to be in a perfect relationship with him. Yes, he's a God of compassion, grace, and mercy, and of concern, who's done everything possible for us to know him and to be in heaven. Maybe you're sitting there thinking about how in the world can I be in heaven? How can I know that when this life is over that my soul is in heaven with the Lord? John 14, verse six, Thomas asked Jesus, Jesus, how can we know the way? We know you're going to heaven. How can we know the way? And Jesus said in John 14, six, Thomas, I am the way, I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. But what about those moments when we reject God's way? Yes, God is a God of grace and mercy and of compassion, yet he's also just. John Phillips said it well. God does not send people to hell. They send themselves there by refusing to heed his call and believe his son. Jesus came to this earth and died on the cross for sins that he never committed. Why? Because he was dying for you and for me. He was dying as a substitute in our place. He was put into a grave and three days later, he rose again from the grave. Alive. And through Christ today, he offers forgiveness. He offers cleansing. He offers eternal life. And yes, even eternity in heaven but we must believe. How do we do that? Isn't it interesting what the rich man asked of Abraham? The Bible says that the rich man looked at Abraham, and here's what he said. Father Abraham, if someone can go to my brothers, if someone can go to them from the dead, they will repent. Who told him about repentance? Who who said anything about repentance? Please understand, in this moment, what the rich man was recognizing is this. In order to be in heaven and not in hell, a person has to repent. So, So Abraham, please send someone to my brothers. You know what repentance is? Repentance means that we turn away from our sin and we turn to the Savior. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 5, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. How do you do that? It's very simple. You believe 
that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the grave. You confessed your sins and turned from them and confessed Jesus as Lord. Today, the simple truth is this. We must believe in Jesus for us to experience the joy of eternal life and of heaven. But for those who refuse, in eternity, they will experience the same reality that the rich man is still experiencing today. The question I ask you to consider this morning is this. Will you believe in Jesus? I realize that this message is heavy. And can I say to you this morning that it's probably one of the hardest messages I've ever preached. But it's true. If you're still listening and tuning in and you're sitting in your living room or wherever you're at right now, I want you to know that God loves you. And he's made a way for you to be forgiven and to be saved. He's made a way for you to know when this temporary life is over that heaven is your home and that you enjoy his presence for all eternity. But heaven is not automatic. It is only for those who believe in Jesus and confess him as Lord. And so while I know this is heavy and I know it's a lot to chew and a lot to think on, I beg you today, don't miss God's opportunity. Don't put off to later what God is calling you to do today. Your eternity rests upon what you do with this decision. What will you do with Jesus? Jesus came and was crucified, rose again so that you could have life and have it abundantly. My hope and prayer is that no one will refuse. Jesus said he was not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The question I ask you today is, will you come? This morning, if you need to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you want to know with certainty that heaven is your home, I'm going to invite you right now. Would you pray with me? Would you pray and would you say, God, I know that I have sinned against you. I know I don't deserve heaven. But God, I believe that Jesus came and died on the cross for all my sins. I believe that he rose again from the grave. He's a Lord over everything. And God, today I turn from my sin and I put my hope and my trust in Jesus. Jesus would save me today. God, from this day forward, help me not to live like the world around me, but to live in the truth that heaven is my home. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if you're joining us right now, at the bottom of your screen, there's a link. Today, if you've made a decision to follow Jesus, to know that heaven is your home, that Jesus is your Lord, I want to encourage you to follow that link and let us know that you made a decision to trust in Jesus. We would love to welcome you. The Bible says in Luke 15 that when one sinner repents, there is rejoicing all over heaven, and we'd love to rejoice with you. 
If you're listening today and you are a Christian, you know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, I remind you, every single person you know will spend an eternity in heaven or in hell. There's no time to waste. There's no conversation to waste. There's no moment to waste. Let's be faithful to be the light for Christ, the witnesses of the Lord Jesus that he's called us to be. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.